0: Well, I would love to have you take your Bibles as you settle back in and turn with me to Psalm 56. Psalm 56. Uh, Today we are taking a step out of our regular preaching series that's taking us through the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, on this Mother's Day, as other Mother's Days, I like to take opportunity to address things that I think are pertinent to family, family needs, and so we come today to Psalm 56. There's sermon notes in your bulletin that I know will be a help to you uh, along the way here. If you are keeping track of some of the, the uh, terms that have been used to describe modern day parenting over the last couple decades, uh, some of the terms I'm going to give you now then are going to be familiar to you. You have heard of helicopter parenting and it's wild success. Just kidding. Uh, You've heard of tiger moms, Uh, that's of those other people, you would never admit to being a tiger mom, Uh, but that typically is not reputed to be working all that well. Free-range parenting. (laughs) I know, that's about chickens and eggs, but it's also used for parenting. Some of you are familiar with free-range parenting and might pride yourself on being that, but uh, at least newer to me in the last few months is another term, and who knows, maybe I'm breaking the news to you. Then now there's a new opportunity. It's called snowplow parenting. Have you heard of this? No, well, I tell you what. It came to me uh, via, uh, let's see, what's his name? Ben Zimmer in the Wall Street Journal who was describing this, uh, the failure of some of these other approaches to parenting and on the heels of the college admissions cheating scandal, which I'm not gonna comment about at all, not the point. Uh, he describes snowplow parenting. That is the effort of, of parents To to go ahead of their kids, not skiing down the hill, not that snowplow, but the snowplow pushing obstacles out of the way of their children, so that our poor little children will not have any insurmountable things come their direction. Snowplow parenting, Um, he says. This um, it begins, uh, renews a national conversation about just how some parents, how far some parents are willing to go to make their children's lives easier. Well, uh, forget the titles and all of that. There's no doubt that we live in an age where people are grasping at things to, to try to make it work. And May I suggest, uh, maybe this isn't true of you, but for many, driven by fear. Fear. Uh, fear of the world, fear of the problems in the world, fear of how poorly things seem to be going, fear of the pressures and what they're going to do to our kids, fear of well usually there 's fear of things out there, but if truth be known, fear that 's within as well. am I going to be up for this task? Can I be a successful mom or dad or parent grandparent in in a day in which there are so many obstacles against us and so my title today, Christian Parenting in an Age of Fear um, I want this morning to address from scripture um, what I consider just one of the the, the bottom lines on which. A foundation on which truly Christian parenting must be built if you think that i 'm going to address all of parenting in the next thirty minutes, wrong, not going to happen but but really, I want to focus in on one area: uh, Christian parenting in an age of fear and I think psalm fifty six will be a help to that now, uh, in terms of resources, I have listed several in your study notes. And I want to comment on just a couple of these at the time because a lot is written helpfully on topics related to fear, a book that I have referenced numerous times uh, is this book by Ed Welch called Running Scared, subtitled Fear, Worry, and a God of Rest. And this has been a book we used in one of our biblical counseling seminars. We do those once a year on a specific topic, but super good book. And in fact, there's a chapter in here that describes ways in which fear often presents itself in the life of a Follower of Jesus or others who are not yet in a relationship with the God of the Bible. Well, he lists ways in which fear sometimes shows up. Maybe things you wouldn't think of. But he, of course, would say um, phobias, we quickly would say. And he gives a whole list of things people are would, would be afraid of on that level. Uh, dreams, nightmares, fear that show up in dreams, fears like that. Physical clues, heart palpitations. A sense of being anxious, of course. A sense of stress, certainly. Being busy and driven. Does that apply to anybody? Well, he, he attaches some of that. Yes, the pace of the world. But it can be driven by fear. Fear that I'm not going to make it. Fear that I, I've got to provide more for my family. Fear that I'm not going to keep up. Fear that years from now my kids are going to look back and say, you didn't, whatever it was. But driven, drivenness, too busy. I'm so afraid. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna. My kids are gonna miss out, and it's gonna be my fault. Oh, 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 depression. He lists. Not, not all depression, but he would say there can be some depression that's really driven by fear. That scary world out there. Why get out of bed if the world's just gonna eat me up today? I mean, depression can be fueled. By a variety of fears, fear that our life is coming to a conclusion. He lists anger as perhaps related to fear. Anger? Really? H- how, would, how would anger be a manifestation of fear? Well, for some, we're wanting to control life so desperately. And in case you hadn't noticed, sometimes other people defy your efforts to control them. N- yep, nowhere is that more evident than in parenting. And sometimes it brings fear or anger to the surface because we're we're scared that if we don't get it done this way, hmm, overprotection, you suppose? Yeah, superstitions, right? He just lists a whole different number of different ways that fear shows up. Now, a, a newer offering on this topic, and, and one that has a couple of good things in it uh, that I haven't I haven't read this book yet. The Storm Toss Family by Russell Moore. I really like Russell Moore. He's a good writer says some really, really helpful things. But he adds a corrective here that I'm looking forward to reading. Browse the book initially. But chapter 4, you've heard it said, family first. Well, he takes that on in chapter 4. And he says, oh, really? Is that what you meant to say? If you're a Christian parent, did you mean to say family first? Or how about this? If you're truly going to love your family the way you know Christ wants you to, Christ must be first. And he talks, as others do, about what sometimes shows up almost as as the cult of the family. You say, wait a minute, those are fighting words. Okay, take it up with Russell Moore. Read chapter four before you take issue. Um, yes, family. Family, yes, important. Oh, but be careful. I gave you a quote from Russell Moore. And then one other book to comment on, and then we'll jump into to our, our time in God's word. But Tim Kimmel, another a writer that I really like, uh, why Christian Kids Rebelled. Not a new book. It's been around for a while. But I, I noticed here that he lists some fear-driven reactions that sometimes are surfaced in the lives of, of Christian families. Uh, he lists these as really fear-driven reactions. Compulsory Christianity. You had better go to church and you'd better like it. That works well. I'm kidding. It doesn't. Uh, cliche Christianity. Comfortable Christianity, cocoon Christianity, or compromise Christianity. Well, a lot of resources out there. Those are listed on your your study notes. But I'd like to pray for us, and I want us to go to Psalm 56. And I'm really after this really one element today, just one thing that I think uh, without which uh, our parenting or our lives in in general um, are missing critical, critical foundation. Pray with me. Father, we come today to your word, Um, yes, looking around us and seeing reasons for fear, there are many, and yet coming to you and remembering again that you are the God who is not surprised by what's around us. You are a God who's not overwhelmed by the problems of the world, and you today are a firm foundation. And so we come to you and ask you to help us, help us to remember what's true, help us to remember what's right. So, Father, we look to you now as we come to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look with me at your study sheet, you see several things just to kind of work through what I have here in front of you. Uh, certainly the quote at the top, Russell Moore, as I mentioned, and then a little paragraph on what's going on with Psalm 56. There are two Psalms, Psalm 34 and Psalm 56, that find their historical foundation really in a, in a, in a key event in the life of what I've called Not Yet King David. Do you know what I mean by that, Not Yet King David? uh david who's going to be a great uh king of israel about oh goodness sakes roughly a thousand bc or so he's he's not the king yet he's he's been promised to be king anointed king but he's not there yet he's young he's a he's a young buck if you will he's he's got a lot ahead of him his resume is very very empty hasn't done much yet um well unless you count beating Goliath. That was kind of cool. First uh, Samuel 17 has him taken the head off of a uh, family audience. Well, he had a little struggle with the big giant and he won. All right. First Samuel 17. Well, in first Samuel, uh, a little later for Samuel 21, you find an additional story and it goes something like this. David is being chased by the current king who knows that this young warrior guy is going to take his job. And King Saul isn't up for that. And so he's got the, the army out looking for uh, soon-to-be King David. And David is running like crazy. They're after him and he knows it. it, it this particular moment in, in 1 Samuel 21, David is, is, does not have any weapons on him. He's a warrior. He's got no weapons. And he's running away for his life. And he comes to the place where King uh, sorry, where Goliath's sword is stashed. And there's a whole story about that. But he, he gets Goliath's sword. And you remember now, key part of the detail, Goliath was the giant from, what, what's, sorry? Gath. I mean, who's ever heard of that? Well, they did back then. It was a, in enemy territory. That's where Goliath, the big guy, was from. David just recently took out the champion. Well, David's running, his, he's got nowhere to go. And so in his truly desperate situation, He runs to Gath. He thinks, King Saul will never find me here. I think that's probably true. He runs to Gath. He's carrying Goliath's sword. And of course, as he walks down Main Street in Gath, some other people notice, hey, isn't that the guy? Somebody else was in the army apparently that day on the other side. And they're saying, it's, it's, the, it's that kid who, who beat Goliath. Look, there he is. So they go to the king and they say, hey, oh, king, you remember David? He's in town. And they go get him. Now, what do you do as a young guy, uh, apparently alone? People are after you in this direction. And the enemies catch you. How do you feel today? Is it a good day? Is it a bad day? Right home to your mother? It's terrifying. Your life went from already bad. You run into enemy territory. What are you thinking? They catch you and they take you to Akish, the king of Gath. And David, in his desperation to read the account, he, he's desperate enough to do the only thing he knows to stay alive. And it says he acts like He's insane. He scribbles on the walls and he drools all over himself. And he does whatever he thinks a madman looks like and acts like. And true enough, the king looks at him and says, get this guy out of here. Am I short on madman? He says, I love that. Am I short on madman? Look at you people. Get him out of here. And David ends up escaping. And as First Samuel 22 begins, it says he's hiding in a cave. And a group of people come to him. Well, his family, some of his family comes to help him out. But some other people, it comes people who are in distress People who are in debt they're they're all troubled people. he gather there's several hundred of them come to him that's his army. Everybody whose life is a mess comes and joins him in the cave. Do you want to be part of that group? Not so much, and there's david there's David now from that circumstance with Gath. again psalm thirty four which I think probably came later psalm fifty six which comes I suspect, a little earlier. Um, Here's where it comes from. Here's what I want to do. I want to read this. I want to read the chapter. I want to say a few words about psalms, and particularly psalms of lament, and how to read them. I want to point us to a key verse, or two or three. And then I want to make several other comments about how the psalm holds together, okay? But look with me then at God's word. I want to read Psalm 56, one through 13, a song. It's really written to be a song. This young guy knows how to write poetry. And so he, he says, be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long and attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample all day on me all day long for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings or my wanderings put my tears in your bottle are they not in your book then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call This, this I know that God is for me in God whose word I praise in the Lord whose word I praise in God I trust I shall not be afraid what can man do to me I must perform my vows to you, O God, and I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. God's word. Now, uh, some of us are familiar with psalms or more familiar with psalms than others. Uh, 150 psalms uh, are collected in this biggest book of the Bible, 150 of them. And the Psalms are an honest expression of human experience. Uh, Many people find the Psalms to be maybe the most loved book of the Bible for them in many cases. Some Psalms are upbeat and exciting and life is wonderful. And in other Psalms, life is hard. It's difficulty. Uh, You find difficulty all around. Um, Psalms of lament. Now, I mentioned them as a specific group. There are different types of Psalms. If you want to study such things, I have a book for you on that too. It's called And I Will Praise Him by Ron Allen. It's a pretty cool book. Helps you understand the genre of psalms. But he references, as other writers do too, psalms of lament. And of course, a lament is a, is a note of sadness, isn't it? Uh, we're familiar with laments. Often we don't write poetry as such. But a, a lament proper in a psalm typically follows a certain formula. Like a lot of poetry, there are forms that fit certain types of poetry. A limerick is a type of poetry. Uh, And so a psalm of lament lament, typically follows a certain form. Usually there's an opening expression about life and about God. Then there's a, a lament proper. Now David jumps right into it here in this psalm. And usually psalms of lament resolve with some kind of a note of praise or a commitment to praise. And certainly that's true in this psalm. Now, I want to say this about laments. Laments often catch our hearts in a really powerful way because we read them and we say in a time of difficulty, yes, God, that's me. They express sadness and lostness and struggle in in very profound ways. Sometimes they talk about deep emotion. And in our times of difficulty and emotion, sometimes it's the Psalms of Lament that we find very helpful in expressing our own heart to God. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's a gift from God that he has put right here in front of us. The the songs of others who have been sad or struggled. Now, I have a, a note of reminder or caution here. Okay? The Psalms of lament in the Bible are presented before God, sometimes in our lamenting of life. Sometimes we we forget, may I say in today's uh, broader Christian world, sometimes we are even encouraged to express our thoughts to God in less filtered ways. I have been saddened, disappointed at times to have heard of or heard people uh, call on God's people to, in their crying out to God, Uh, Just to let it go in the most unfiltered and raw and even profane ways. With people saying things even like this. Don't worry about God. He's a big boy. He can handle it. And you know, may I just say this. Be honest with God as you cry out to him. But let us never in our lamenting forget who we're talking to. You hear what I'm saying on this? Uh, as As a parent... Um, when our kids were uh, expressing concern about something, we wanted them to express themselves uh, clearly. But if you grew up in our home, you could get in trouble for how you talked to your daddy or your mommy. Amen on that? Tell me how you feel, honey, but you know what? You're still talking to your daddy. So go ahead. How do you really feel about that? we were wanting them to, to learn a certain respect and appropriateness, even in how you speak. And I have heard some today, even in broader Christian circles, say, you know, just let it go. And, just, and I think, oh, yes, but you can speak respectfully before God. And I think we should. Now, the lament proper, I have good news for you. Again, I'm just talking about Psalms in general before we read, uh, look at this one in particular. A lament often expresses both fear and faith. And this one does too. Places of fear and faith. And maybe you've thought about this or struggle with this. Maybe you haven't. Um, I believe those two emotions, uh, strength of faith and the emotion of fear, I think it can, they can coexist. Uh, I'm afraid, yes, but I want to turn to God, not away from him. And I think that's one of the differentiating marks of how Christians should experience fear. Is, you know, If I tell you you should never be afraid, uh, right away you're going to say, well, okay, I'm going to try real hard not to be afraid, but, but you will be. And I think one of the things that makes faith what it is for a Christian is that in our, in our fearful times, we, we run to God with them. We come to him. So if you're worried somehow that if you're, you experience fear that you're not being a good Christian, just relax with that, okay, and take it to the Lord. Take it to the Lord. Questions often come our way. What's happening? Uh, Why is this happening? Has God forgotten me? Is something worse about to happen? These things often are part of our laments. Well, I want to look then at Psalm 56, and I'm going to rivet my attention and ours together at certain key places. He begins this psalm with an expression right out of the chute to God. Help me, help me, God. Be gracious to me. Be graceful to me, Full of grace. This is going on, and it's terrible. Verse three. If I could, if I could see a verse, a phrase, it's kind of the core of this chapter. I think this is it. And if you're going to walk out of here and say somebody's going to say, "What was the sermon about?" You're going to talk about this in your community groups this week. I hope somebody gets verse three. All right, verse three. Verse three. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. Okay, what is that? What is that verse? Is that a promise to God? Can you promise that? Whenever I'm afraid from here on out for the rest of my life, I will always trust in you. Is that, is that a good promise for you to make? Well, it, it, might be, it might be something you want to do, but my hunch is you might not be able to promise that. I, I think verse 3 perhaps is a statement of aspiration, of, of hope, of intent. God, when I'm afraid... I'm, I'm going to put my trust in you. It's going to be a choice I make. It's going to be a, a struggle I'm going I'm to step into. And I'm going to need your help to do this. But when I'm afraid, I will trust in you. There's a kid CD that our kids, when they were young, listened to. And I forget who did it. Steve Green? I could sing it to you, but I won't today. That'll be another, that'll be another setting. But it it captures that phrase, when I am afraid, I will trust in you, I will trust in you. I love it because the point of that is to teach our kids young what all of us as adults really need to hear as well. When I am afraid, I will trust in you, I'll trust in you, I'll trust in you, I will. Keep that theme then before you as we move ahead. Verse 4 and verses 10 and 11 have have, have a parallelism, and I view it kind of as a refrain of a song, kind of like we sing songs and repeat something, and David's doing it here. Of course, it's a song. So, uh, set to certain music. So, he gets to verse 4 and he sings it this way. And God, whose word I praise. I wonder what the music was like. And he does it again in verses 10 and 11. Now, I asked here in, in, on your study notes under trusting God's presence and care. What does David know? What does he know? What does he believe about God that he holds on to? It's the knot in the rope. Right, when, you're, when you're falling, what's the knot in the rope? What do you hang on to? There's a lot of things that I don't know in life. I've discovered this. The more you learn and the older you get, the less you know. <laughs> at least the smart people know that. You know, when you're young, you know it all. I mean, or at least a higher proportion of it. Then you get a few years behind you, you find out, man, I'm more sure of a few things and less sure of a whole lot more. Uh, I resemble that remark. Well, one of the, the things you can say, well, I, I, I don't know a lot of stuff, but here's what I do know. And David lists several right here in this psalm that I think are good for us too. He's got that refrain in God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise. I'm going to hold on to him. I'm going to hold on. Now, verses five through seven, that middle paragraph, it's, man, we're in the middle of this mess. These people are after me. God, get him, Get him. God. Verse seven, then verse eight. Here's some things he knows. He knows to be true. He says, you've kept count of my tossings. The NAS says my wanderings. A similar idea, depending on how it's, uh, whether you use NAS or ESV or some others. You've kept track of me in my wanderings, um, not just geographically. Now, David, of course, has found himself in Gath. And I really want you to pay attention to this detail. Depending on who, who's... Uh, comments you're reading on this and this journey to Gath. Uh, some would see David running to Gath as a lack of faith. He's leaving. He's leaving home. He's running in fear. He runs into enemy, enemy territory. And more than run, one writer says he shouldn't have done that. This was a not a faith filled run. Well, I, I, I'm not so sure about that. I think you could could, could do this in faith, so I'm not sure I agree with that. But this, this I know, whether it was a faith-filled or faith-driven journey or not, God had his eye on him the whole way. Even as he has his eye on you, on the days when you're doing well and on the days when you're not. David says he knows You keep track of my wanderings. I love that. I have represented that on your study sheet under the category of God sees me. It shows up twice. God sees me. God sees me. There is a a profound gift from God that he keeps his eye on you at whatever place you are in your life. I reference here the story of Hagar in the book of Genesis, running, running, alone, scared. And it was one of those wonderful theology-filled moments when she confesses about God to God. You are a God who sees. And friend, could I just say to you, wherever you're at, whatever stuff you have going in your life, whether today you're on the top of the world or you're at the bottom of the barrel, God sees you today. He sees you today. Psalm 34, that other parallel psalm. David says a very similar thing. He says, the eyes of the Lord are, are on the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. So wherever you're at, even if you're at a place of running, even in fear. Oh, listen, you're a child of God. You know him. Oh man, don't you forget for a minute. He's got his eye on you. He sees you in your wandering You're you're not out of his sight. Psalm 139 affirms this thing. Where can I go? Where can I go from your presence? God sees me. He sees me. Further, verse 8 continues, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Wow. David's a warrior. David's a warrior. There's been a kind of an emphasis in recent days about manly men, of course. You know, um, throughout history, Men have been raised with the eye that, uh, with the idea that uh, big boys—how's it go? Yeah, big boys don't cry. Some of us believe that big boys don't cry. It's not true, of course. Certainly not true of David here. But let me say this: Um, most of us—and maybe I just—I can't speak to women because I'm not one—but for a guy, at least. You don't just cry with anybody, if you're gonna, do you? If a guy's gonna cry, who's he gonna cry with? Somebody he trusts profoundly. Somebody he, who's, he, he, he knows his heart is safe. He knows his vulnerability is safe. He's not just gonna be Anybody? Well, David, I don't know. Those things were back then. And he didn't have the whole big boys don't cry thing. My, my, my deal is this, and I have it on your study sheet under God knows how I feel. He's very near. He's near in my sadness, loneliness, and fear. God sees me. God knows me. He knows how I feel. David, David knew. God knew how he felt even as he ran. And then as well, as you look at verse 9, then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call, this I know. Here's another, one of those core things. This I know. I know this. I don't know a lot of other things. Don't know how I'm getting out of here. Don't know how this mess is going to resolve. But this I know. God is for me. God is for me. God is for me. He's not against me. God is for me. He's not against me. And I say again, even if David did run out of fear to Gath, even there in a place where maybe he shouldn't have gone, he could say, this I know, he's for me. He's for me. He's not against me. God is not against me. God is not against me. He's for me. For his glory, for his praise. Not because I'm the the king of the universe. He is. This I know. God is for me. He knows where I'm at. He has not forgotten me. He is not going to forget that I'm here. God sees me. He knows how I feel. God is for me. And then that chorus again. I'll not be afraid. What can man do to me? I have a section here called Why the Gospel Matters on Mother's Day. Verse 9, that phrase, this I know that God is for me. How do you know? Let me just ask you. How do you, how do you know God is for you? How do you know? Well, the Bible says it, like here, that's one. Let me tell you the biggest way, okay? If you've walked with Jesus for a while, you've got stories to be told about how he's cared for you, I know. But get this, the biggest way that you know God is for you, and don't, you don't you ever forget this, the biggest way you know is because he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross in your place to meet your biggest need so that whether you find your way out of whatever struggle or pit you're in today or, or you don't and you live with it the rest of your life, there are struggles we live with the rest of our life, right? There are. No, you know God is for you because he sent his son Jesus into this earth to walk these dusty streets and let creatures that he'd made crucify him in your place. Jerry Bridges, I have represented here, he said repeatedly, preach the gospel to yourself every day. That's at Jerry Bridges. I don't know if it was original with him, but he said it more than anybody I ever came across. Had him in a class or two, read a few of his books, Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Why? What was the point, Jerry? The point is this. We are forgetful people, and with the noise, the noise of our life just gets so full of other stuff that sounds like problems. It sounds like thunder and lightning. It sounds like, you know, a storm coming. And it drowns out those calm and sure, faith-filled voices. So Bridges would say, no, you preach the gospel to yourself, yourself every day because every day you live you need to remember, no, God is for me. How do I know that? Because Jesus died on the cross in my place, rose from the dead. That's how I know God is for me. It's because of the gospel. It's, a, it's God's biggest billboard that says that I'm on your team, I'm on your side, I sent a savior for you. That's how you know God is for you. Preach the gospel to yourself every day, um, that comes across when we 're at different places in our lives it comes across differently um, you 're today maybe right in that place of raising little darlings sticky fingerprints everywhere and spilled stuff and the chaos of laundry and I, I know I know i 'm very familiar with with some of that 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 craziness. Don't you need every day to get up? Uh, maybe somebody bouncing on you at that moment, I know. May, don't you need to be awakened every day knowing God is for me? God is for me. I know that that's true because of Jesus. Don't you need that? Uh, in, in years that are past that, your kids are teenagers and you're holding on white knuckles right now. Yeah. Don't you need to wake up every day and say this I know, God is for me? I know that that's true because of Jesus. Your grandparent, kids are grown and gone and you're trying to walk that crazy line of influence without control because you don't have any. You hate that. (laughs) Don't you need to wake up every day saying this I know, God is for me. And I know that that's true because of Jesus. When I am afraid, how's it go? I will trust in you when I'm afraid, which is actually pretty often, when I'm afraid of what tomorrow holds, when I'm afraid of what this disease will do, when I'm afraid of how this is gonna turn out or their choices, when I'm afraid of all kinds of things I can't control, when I'm afraid, I will trust in you. Look with me at those responses of giving you a couple things to think about. First, a reminder, not all worry is necessarily sinful, but it can become sin very quickly when you allow uh, worry to control your life, when you respond to life out of fear. I see a lot of parents today making decisions out of fear. Now and then I see people reminded of a certain circumstance I was in some years ago when a pitch was being made for a certain thing, and uh, I'll keep it nebulous. And the big appeal was, look at how awful the world is, Christian parents. Here's what you should do. I just think, wow, maybe they're asking you to do the right thing, but don't do it that way. Don't be driven by fear. Don't be driven by fear. No, children of God, we live in faith. Don't let it become sin. When I am afraid, it's where I turn, the, the trajectory of my life, the, the, where my feet turn. When, my, when I'm afraid, sometimes I'm tempted to run away from God. When I'm afraid, I should run to Him. I mentioned here the manna principle. And I, I pull that out of, I think it's chapter four in this book, Running Scared. We spent time on that again in a biblical counseling seminar uh, several years ago. Some of you are familiar with our expression of that. The whole chapter from Ed Welch is based on the story in the Old Testament of manna, how God provided in the desert food for his people, but you remember he did it a certain way. He could have done it a lot of other ways, but he... He provided bread from heaven every morning. And you had to go out with an empty bucket every day and get it. And you couldn't get up, get extra and save it because it spoiled. He made sure of that. Why? Why can't I just gather for the whole week? Because he wanted you every single day to show up broke in need of what God can give. God alone can give. That's what he wanted his people to do. Every day show up with an empty bucket. The manna principle. And every day we show up with an empty bucket. And we say, God, I live in a world of fear and problems today. Here I am with my empty bucket. To get the grace that only you can give me for today. And tomorrow, I can't get grace for tomorrow yet. Because it's not tomorrow. I get grace for today. Are you worried about something for years from now? What am I going to do in when this happens? You know what? You're not there yet. God is there. He's given you an empty bucket for today. So manna principle. Manna principle. Show up today and say, God, give me what I need for today. Ephesians 6, I've given you some things to think about there, even send you to Wikipedia. Um, I'll let you think about that another time. Uh, I'll talk to you about it another time. Well, folks, I want to pray for us. I want to pray for us. Um, Christian parenting in an age of fear, for it to be truly Christian parenting, Christian living, it's built on a foundation of genuine trust in God. That's what it is. I'd love for you to stand with me. And uh, after we pray, I want to say just a word or two and then we'll we'll head out. Father, I thank you for these dear people gathered this morning before you on this Mother's Day. We do live in a world that gives us reason for fear. And our Father, I pray that we as your people would not be characterized by oppressive fear but we'd be characterized by faith really believing you holding on to you in a world of fear teach us what it means to trust you more than we do father i pray for those who've come today with specific areas of need and challenge that you'd give them grace for today to trust you even with those hard things and father for any today who are separated from you maybe don't have a relationship with you at all through jesus i pray that you just Tug their heart today. Bring them a step closer, step closer, step closer all the way to the place where they would call out to you and say, God, I believe Jesus died for me. Trust Christ alone as my savior from sin. Thank you, our Father. We can trust you with this work as well. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.